Right this evening, we are going to consider 1 Samuel 21 and 1 Samuel 22. Next week, Lord willing, we'll take the next two chapters, chapters 23 and 24. Let's bow to begin with prayer. Our Father, we call upon you, whom David called upon so long ago, and found in you a perfect refuge and stronghold. We bless you for that provision of your grace surrounding him, keeping him, preserving him. We thank you that through his greater son, We are kept and preserved and even saved from all evil. Bless us in Jesus' name as we consider this father and ancestor of our great Savior. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. The fugitive is on the run. He has fled to God's prophet, to Samuel in chapter 19. He has fled to the king's son, to Jonathan, the royal heir apparent, whose erstwhile enthronement has been relinquished to David, chapter 20. Now in chapter 21, he flees to God's priest. The transition from Saul to David, endorsed by a prophet, by a priest, and by the king whose right it is. David on the run, encircled by the arena, the threefold arena, prophet, priest, and king. Now, there are narrative units here in this 21st chapter. Uh, What do we look for in order to attempt to distinguish uh, between or within narrative units? Anyone? Bill? Location, all right? And what location do we have here? Or do we have more than one location in this 21st chapter? Go ahead, Bill. You're nodding your head. We're going to Nob in verse 1. Very good. And we've changed location from where? Before he comes to Nob, where has David been? In the field with Jonathan, near what city do you suppose? What region? Gabeah of Saul. Probably Gabeah of Saul. Probably in the region of Saul's house or palace where he and Jonathan, where David and Jonathan have made their covenant again, renewed their covenant again. All right, he comes to Nob. Is there any other narrative unit in this? Chapter. Near 
In verse 10, he goes to Achish where? In Gath. All right, so he changes location from Nob to Gath. Therefore, we have narrative units from verse 1 to verse 9 and from verse 10 to verse 15, the end of the chapter. All right, going back to verse 1 and the location of Nob, you have a map in your handout for tonight. But from Isaiah chapter 10, verse 32, we have a clue as to the geographical location of the city of Nob or the village of Nob. Well, the prophet Isaiah in the 8th century B.C. declares that the Lord will bring the Assyrian scourge. He will bring the hosts of the Assyrian army down upon Judah from the siege of Lachish to Nob, at or near the hill of Jerusalem, as he describes the location. Now, the siege of Lachish, which is named by Isaiah in that prophecy, siege of Lachish was uh, instituted by Sennacherib, king of Assyria, in 701 B.C. And you may recall that from Lachish, where Sennacherib surrounded that city and ultimately conquered it, he sent his Rabshakeh to Jerusalem with a bevy of his troops to surround Jerusalem. And in his own annals, Sennacherib said that he shut up Hezekiah king in Jerusalem like a bird in a cage. Well, that famous incident is a background for elucidating the location of Nob as uh, the text reads there in verse 32 of Isaiah 10, near or at the hill of Jerusalem. So consequently, Nob is close by Jabesh on your map or Jerusalem uh, in uh, David's day. So verse 10, he goes, as we noted, from Nob to Gath. And where is Gath located? Philistia. Whose city is Gath? And I don't want Achish. Goliath. Very good. Goliath is from Gath. There's certainly a slight touch of irony there. That is that David is back in or in the city of the man whom he slew on the plains of Elah. Is there any other ironic reflection in the fact that David is in a Philistine city? You may recall in chapter 18, verses 17 and 25, that Saul had wanted the Philistines to do his dirty work in killing David. Now, it didn't work out, but here is David in the nation of those whom David and Saul, his enemy, had hoped would actually kill him. Keep the ironies in mind. There are more ironies to be built up uh, in this text. It is the movement of David which will be the focus of our narrator in the ensuing chapters 
all the way up to chapter 26, the oft, rapid, even frenetic movement of David, as he is the object, the despised object of the murderous Saul. Chapter 21 is a chapter chock full of doublets, ironic doublets, emphatic doublets, mirror doublets, doublets which confirm that David is the Lord's elect, the true king of the people of God, a truth recognized by those who know in Israel and in Judah, but a truth doubly recognized by the Gentiles outside of Israel and Judah. Notice verse 11. Is this not David the king, spoken by the Philistines themselves? God's own endorsement of his anointed is confirmed twice over, even by the nations. Now, Ahimelech, in verse 1, has a pedigree. His pedigree extends all the way back to his ancestral house, the house of Eli, the priestly house of Eli, whose wicked sons were cursed by the Lord in chapter 2, verse 34, and chapter 3, verse 13. One of those wicked sons named Phineas is the father of Ahitov, who appears in chapter 22, the next chapter, verse 9. Ahitov, who is the father of Ahimelech, and the father of Ahijah, Ahimelech's brother, as he is named in chapter 14, verse 3. Ahimelech is likely the high priest amongst a band of priestly servants. In verse 18 of chapter 22, we learn that there are 85 of these priests at the tabernacle in Nob. And David is drawn into the circle of the tabernacle of the Lord. He is drawn into the tabernacle arena of the bread of presence, verse 6. Or as the Hebrew text literally reads, the bread before the face bread. The before the face bread. <clears throat> Notice how the Hebrew word gives you an idiom which creates a picture, an image in your mind. Hebrew is an extremely picturesque language. It is full of imagery. And consequently, it capitalizes on the power to create pictures. And so the preaching of the Old Testament should follow the idiom of the Hebrew narrative, which is to create imagery and pictures in the imagination of the hearer. They can see the drama of the text 
as it is portrayed through the words of the text itself. This is not bare bones catechetical doctrine. This is vivid, dramatic imagery of the wonderful grace of God drawing us into his own life story, into his own dramatic story, into his own dramatic arena. The imagery of the Hebrew language is unto the imagery of the God who has inspired it. And so this imaginative description of the bread of the presence, the before the face, the in front of the face, the before the face of the Lord bread. That is the show bread of the presence of God at his tabernacle. David has been drawn into the circle of God's electing favor in chapter 16. He has been drawn into the circle of Israel's shepherd champion in chapter 17. He has been drawn into the circle of his beloved friend Jonathan in chapters 18 and 20. He has been drawn into the circle of the Holy Spirit in chapter 19. Now David stands in the arena of the tabernacle. We must pause to savor this privilege. We must pause to drink in the theology of the tabernacle. The theology of the tabernacle and David folded into that theological drama. The imagery of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is called the tent of meeting because it is the place where God meets man. We are once again struck by God's gracious, God's graciously marvelous voluntary condescension. To once again borrow that language from chapter 7, paragraph 1 of the Westminster Confession. God's gracious, voluntary condescension. That he comes down out of heaven to meet with man at the level of the creature. God humbles himself. God comes down himself to meet with his creature, to reveal his presence to David. And in that condescension, in that humiliation, God pitches his presence in the self-same mode of dwelling As his people, he tents among those who dwell in tents. The Lord not only graciously condescends to lower himself 
and dwell among his creatures. He dwells among them in the identical abode in which they dwell. He participates in the self-same dwelling in which they participate. He identifies with them in dwelling amongst them. We may say that the tabernacle is the embodiment of God among his people, an embodiment of God's presence in the midst of his needy, needing grace and mercy people. David comes into that arena. He comes into that arena in chapter 21. Into the arena of God's dwelling with him graciously, mercifully. He, before the face of the Lord, he, drawn into the circle of God's humiliation, He, in the arena of a condescension of God, to tabernacle with him, to identify with him. I am your God, David. You are my son. And I will meet you in my dwelling place. For the Lord draws David into the arena of participation, identification with the divine presence. The theology of the tabernacle is experienced by David. The theology of the tabernacle is experienced by David as he flees to God's dwelling place. How lovely are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts. David seeks the face of the Lord and is assured of face-to-face communion in the Lord's presence in the meeting place presence where God feeds David's hunger, feeds David's hunger with himself. David enters the arena of the tabernacle and finds himself face to face with the one who identifies with us by tabernacling amongst us. The protological David experiences the circle of the eschatological David. The eschatological David, who is the eschatological tabernacle of God with men. John chapter 1, verse 14. 
Yes, we must pause to savor, not the bread of the presence. Rather, we must pause to take in the profound riches of God's tabernacling with his sons and his daughters. It is no coincidence that David comes to Ahimelech and the bread of the presence God has drawn him. God has drawn him into richer, deeper, more profound identification with himself. A meeting face to face between the Lord and his elect. The tabernacle is the place where the vertical and the horizontal meet. The tabernacle is the place where the vertical and the horizontal meet, and David experiences it. David experiences it. Now let me develop this a little further. Think of the vertical and the horizontal as a relational dynamic. A relational dynamic. God vertically interposes himself discloses himself, intrudes himself from the vertical into the horizontal. That is, God vertically penetrates, invades, discloses, interposes, intrudes himself relationally along the vertical axis so as to interface with the horizontal axis. God dramatically relates himself from his vertical dimension into man's horizontal dimension. From his vertical, God invades man's horizontal. And at the intersection of the vertical divine intrusion and the horizontal human relation, especially at the tabernacle, vertical-horizontal intersection, At the tabernacle vertical horizontal intersection, there stands a mediator. There stands a high priest. God relates himself from out of his vertical arena to man in his horizontal arena through or by a mediator by a priestly intercessor, by a go-between, 
who functions in both arenas, who is of the horizontal, yet is privileged to function in the vertical as well. The high priest joins two vectors, two arenas, mediates two aspects of the divine human relationship. The tabernacle expresses the theology, the mediatorial theology of the God-man relationship. Next, think of the vertical and the horizontal as an incarnational dynamic. From out of the vertical arena, God condescends to man in order to dwell in man's horizontal arena. God humbles himself from out of the vertical in order to embody himself in the horizontal. At the intersection of the vertical and the horizontal, God takes on the dimension of the time-space horizon. He embodies the horizontal in intersection with his transcendent vertical. Or we may say, he draws the natural into union with his supernatural. He incarnates himself supernaturally, vertically, transcendentally in the human arena. The natural, the horizontal, the imminent. The tabernacle expresses the theology, the incarnational theology of the God-man relationship. Finally, think of the vertical and horizontal as an eschatological dynamic. At the interface of the vertical and the horizontal, God invites man into his dwelling place, into his heavenly tabernacle, into his very own eschatological arena. God vertically comes down to man in order to raise man up to the eschatological dimension, to bring the horizontal into the vertical, to bring the temporal into the eternal, to bring the natural into the supernatural, to bring the created into the never created, to leave the horizontal behind, to leave the horizontal behind so that the vertical may have the preeminence, 
to swallow up the horizontal with what was present before the beginning. To swallow up the horizontal with what was present before the beginning. To surpass the imminent with the transcendent. To bring man out of the horizontal to the eschatological where no history exists. To consummate the surpassing excellence of the eschatological, the eternal, the prior to all creation with no more creation, no more horizontal, no more natural, that God in his own vertical eschatological arena may be all and in all. And and that all horizontal things may pass away because of the fullness of the eschatologically eternal, the eschatologically everlasting things without end as it was before the beginning, show it shall be after the ending." The tabernacle expresses the theology, the eschatological theology of the God-man relationship. As David approaches the tabernacle, he approaches the meeting house of God, the place where heaven comes down to earth and touches the horizon of history in order to draw those in that earthly arena into the arena of God himself who has met with them face to face in the tabernacle of his presence. If you understand that the tabernacle has passed away because Jesus, the Son of God, is the tabernacle of God in the midst of men, then you understand the progress of the history of redemption from the earthly to the divine to the perfectly eschatological in glory where there is no more heaven and no more earth. The progress of the history of redemption, which is to take all of creation and dissolve it so that what was before creation will be fully consummated and declared the eternal glory house of God and everything that he has taken into it, out of the creation. Tabernacle dramatizes the place where God 
meets with his people and projects the everlasting and eternal meeting place where God will be present to his people before the face of his people forever and ever and ever. Though David comes to the tabernacle. Back to the 21st chapter. Verse 1. Ahimelech comes trembling to David. With a fear of the unknown. He does not know why David has come to him. And David's presence unnerves him. David comes to the Philistine king Achish in verse 12 and trembles with great fear of the unknown. He does not know what Achish will do to him and his situation unnerves him. In this chapter, some of the symmetry is ironic, even as you see it in those two places where fear and trembling are underscored. There is the rather jarring irony that David ends up in the grasp of the very nation which Saul hoped to enlist For his destruction. Now, that is ironic juxtaposition. And it is the mark of a master narrator, a brilliant storyteller, who keeps his story twisting as you follow the drama. The doublet in verse 2, the word commissioned, suggests yet another irony. Who is the king that has commissioned David to his secret mission? Is it King Saul? Or is it in fact the Lord, the king? The doublet hand, you will note the marginal readings of some of your versions on this verse, that is verse 3. The doublet hand and the doublet bread in verse 4, hand in verse 3, bread in verse 4, alerts us to what David does not have in his hand, namely bread, the doublet is an emphatic underscoring of his want. This repetition twofold here is a feature of David's exigency, his desperation on account of physical hunger. Our Lord Jesus himself remarks upon David's hunger. This incident in Matthew chapter 12 Verses 3 to 4, a 
narrative that is paralleled in all of the Synoptic Gospels, Mark chapter 2, verses 25 and 26, and Luke chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. And in our Lord's comments about the exigency of David's hunger, while he, on the Sabbath day, feeds his disciples, our Lord underscores the principle of mercy in necessity. Or would you, as a high priest, deny bread or food to a starving man, woman, or child? No more would you deny food to your companions on the Sabbath day. Necessity of providing food. Necessity of providing food for the body overrides either the restriction of consecrated loaves or a consecrated day. As our Westminster standards indicate, the works of necessity per our Lord's pattern in feeding his disciples on the Sabbath are an expression of Sabbath obedience to feed the body as well as to feed the soul. Our Lord Jesus underscores the necessity of sustaining the physical man as well as the spiritual man. And he looks to this incident, 1 Samuel 21, as his proof text. The doublets in verse 4 and 5 kept themselves from women is a reflection of sexual chastity which reaches all the way back to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, verse 15. This is no ordinary campaign of David and his army. This is a consecrated mission in which the baggage and the carry-along vessels have been set apart. They have been consecrated from a profane to a sacred purpose. While it is too strong to suggest that David has embarked upon a holy war, in Hebrew a harem, a holy war campaign here nonetheless, Verse 5 suggests that the king who has commissioned him in verse 2 is the Lord God himself, for he and his band have consecrated themselves by withholding themselves from women. A mark of consecration from the Mosaic law onward. Besides the bread of the presence, in verse 6, which details David in the presence of God before the Lord at his tabernacle, there is doeg. Doeg, in verse 7, who is before the Lord. More irony here. 
ominous irony here. And why do I say ominous irony here? I hold that one. <clears throat> Why do I say that he is ominously before the Lord here? Well, he's an accuser. I mean, he's a. Keep going, Rich. He's Saul's servant. He's it's kind of a spy. He's keep going. Keep going to the next chapter. <laughs> What's he going to do? He's going to kill the priest. This is an ominous irony of Doeg before the Lord in chapter 21. And what is even doubly ironic about Doeg is that he is a shepherd of Saul. He is a shepherd of Saul in the same arena as the shepherd of the Lord. A double irony of both of them being before the Lord or in the Lord's presence and both of them being shepherds or in the role of shepherds. Why? Why does our narrator introduce Doeg here in chapter 21? Why doesn't he just wait until he does his dirty work in chapter 22? Why does he introduce him here? The beginning of how he's involved. Pardon? It's the beginning of how he's involved if he just started... What do we call that? It's the beginning of how he's involved. So what do we call that when we have that kind of a narrative device or narrative pattern? It's foreshadowing. This is a foreshadowing device. The narrator is foreshadowing Doeg because he's going to tie his presence here in chapter 21 and his knowledge obtained from his presence here in chapter 21 to his blabbing and tattletaling in chapter 22, verse 9. In other words, he allows us to see the character who is going to be one of the hinge characters in the next scene of David's career. Or I should say the scene after the next scene in David's career because he's going to go down to Philistia first. The parallel symmetry of Doeg's appearance is portentous, it is deadly. This shepherd is an assassin. He is a murderer and an ally of the serpent who from the beginning is a murderer. Indeed, the irony of our narrative here is contrastive. It is antithetical. The shepherd of Saul murderous as his master. The shepherd of Bethlehem, lifesaver and life preserver as his Lord and master. 
The duplicity here does not belong to the fugitive from Saul. The duplicity here belongs to the henchman of Saul. But our doublets continue in verse 9. David asks Ahimelech to give him Goliath's sword. Now, the fact that the sword has been deposited with the high priest at the tabernacle suggests that verse 54, back in chapter 17, that verse which indicated that David placed the sword in Jerusalem, that verse 54 of chapter 17 is proleptic, proleptic of the sword's final resting place when David himself finally rested from being a fugitive In Jerusalem. What else had David asked Ahimelech to give him? The bread of the presence in verse 3. Notice the doublet. Give me the bread. Give me the sword. Ahimelech, the high priest, as Samuel and Jonathan ratifies the transfer of royal prerogative to David. Ahimelech ratifies the transfer of royal prerogative to David as Samuel did and as Jonathan did. The sword of victory belongs to David and is placed in his hand. Notice the doublets in verse 8. Hand and hand, as your margin reads, sword and sword. The sword of victory belongs to David and is placed in his hand. He is the Lord's anointed champion and the deliverer of the people of God. And Goliath's sword attests to that role. For it is his to whom by right of slaying the enemy it belongs. The sword is wrapped in cloth, waiting, waiting for the arrival of its rightful owner, even as David is waiting, waiting for his rightful enthronement, before Israel and Judah in Jerusalem. And this sword, again the doublet, notice, this sword, no other except it, none like it. It is absolutely exceptional twice over. Now, the double gift of the bread and the sword is a priestly recognition that this one, this fugitive shepherd, this one with whom the Lord is present, is entitled to life from bread and to life from a sword of self-defense. This one, this king must live. And Ahimelech gives him the instruments of life. 
God himself reinforces Ahimelech's endorsement of David as his very own elect by drawing him into the arena of his face-to-face presence with a token, a token and visible reminder of his presence with him once upon a time. Once upon a time in the valley of Elah, when the Emmanuel presence of the Lord accompanied David into the space in between. As David takes up that sword once more, he recalls the presence of the Lord time past. God with me in that valley in between. And he goes forth renewed in the confidence that the Lord is with him. God with me as he leaves the priest of God and the tabernacle of meeting before God's face. If you have any questions or comments about this first narrative unit, David in the presence of Ahimelech at the tabernacle of the Lord. Ling? I don't think so. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say that you couldn't persuade me that it is. Uh, it is the same word. But remember, this bread is the bread of the present. So it is specifically uh, that bread which sits on the table of showbread before the Lord's altar. So I think it is specifically that tabernacling presence bread. It is not the, shall we say, sustenance bread of the house of Bethlehem. Margaret? Um, What does it mean when it says that the sword was wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod? The ephod is the priestly vestment, the priestly garment. It's like a shirt that he wears uh, over his chest. And so it's behind the ephod as if it is in the aura of the consecrated dress as well as the consecrated man. So was this ephod hanging up somewhere? Yes, they, when, they, when, when, they, when they weren't performing their priestly service, they would have the ephod in the tabernacle or somewhere in the vicinity uh, hanging up, and they would put it on when they entered in to their, uh, into their duties. Very much like any uh, high church uh, Christian denomination which uses vestments. They put them on when they go into the pulpit or into their into the place where they do their liturgical or divine service. Yes? How did you get out of this that the king was God rather than Saul? It raised the question there uh, when David... Uh, talks to him in verse 2 about who the king is. It may be intentionally ambiguous because you would think that, all right, the king is Saul. But when we come down to the uh, statement about his uh, band of servants or soldiers being consecrated, okay, that's a theological, that's a, a God-oriented idea. 
So consecration means that they have prepared themselves and set themselves aside. Consecration, like sanctification, they have set themselves aside for a particular sacred task or sacred mission. And therefore, I think that that uh, language later on in the story explains the ambiguity of the term king in verse 2. I think it clears up the possible ambiguity or, or, uh, or doubt that you might have about who the king is that he claims has sent him on the mission. I was reading this all as lies. As? Lies. As lies. All right. Now, that has been said. David is lying here in verse 2. He's actually deceiving uh, Ahimelech. Uh, No, I don't think he is. I think he's saying something which is uh, potentially ambiguous and yet becomes clear when, in fact, he describes himself and his band as uh, as consecrated for this task. Does he have the band already? Yes, he has a group with him. He has uh, he and his men. I thought he didn't have the band until his father came to him, and then that's where their band. <coughs> well, his band will grow in the next chapter to over four hundred, but he has a small band of followers with him. I don't think here, uh, I I think he's still confident here. Uh, I think when he goes down to uh, Gath, I think he begins to quake a little bit. Uh, uh, I don't know that's necessarily a downfall, uh, but nonetheless, uh, David here, I think, is confident, uh, telling Ahimelech something which is sufficiently ambiguous that Ahimelech will not become suspicious that he is uh, devious or that he is trying to rebel against Saul, but that he is asking for Abimelech's endorsement, which he receives. So I don't see David nefariously here. I don't see him duplicitous here. I see him uh, ambiguous, but the ambiguity, I think, is resolved uh, with the language of consecration. There was another question there. Yes. Doe and his character... Is it even more suspicious that there's an Edomite at the tabernacle? I want to hold off on that, okay, because Rich brought that up, and I want to come back to that when we talk about chapter 22. I want to talk about his ethnic identity. Rich? In your footnote about the tabernacle where the uh, the vertical meets, intersects uh, with the horizontal, where... uh, and you seem to suggest, maybe I misunderstood, that history disappears because we're brought into the vertical, into God's presence, where he doesn't occupy time and space as we understand. He's in a different dimension. That's my words. That's not your words. Uh, I would use that word. That's accurate. Go ahead. What what happens to the new heavens and the new earth in that new condition? Or are the new heavens and new earth merely uh, human uh, ways of expressing something eternal which we could never possibly understand in that new dimension, in our present understanding? If I'm correct about saying that history disappears in the eschatological, 
All right? That in heaven there is no time and space. All right? Then Jesus' body is already there. The resurrected physical body of Christ is in a dimension where time and space have no meaning. Not as we understand it. So that is the goal of the resurrection of the flesh. That is the goal of the consummation of the ages. The goal of the consummation of the ages is to take that which God intends to redeem from the corruptible into the corruptible and place it in an arena where there is no more time. Okay, That means that the arena of time and all that it belongs to it, creation, passes away, completely disappears. Second Peter 3 says it's dissolved in the fervent heat. It's going to be vaporized. There's not going to be anything left of matter and energy as we know it. It's going to be completely as it was in the beginning. It's going to go back to ex nihilo. As it was out of nothing that God created, it's going to go back to nothing. He's going to leave nothing at the consummation. Presence. Yes, you will see God present in a dimension in a dimensionless, historyless arena in which His glory will overwhelm you, and your glory will be transformed more and more like unto His. But you didn't answer my question, and I'm not trying to argue with you. No, I don't think the heavens and the earth are literal. I think it's symbolic language. All right. Okay, <clears throat> because I believe that this dimension is left behind. We return. <clears throat> keep in mind. That before Genesis 1-1, before Genesis 1-1, before there is a beginning, before there is a creation, there is a dimension, an eschatological arena, okay? Permanent, eternal, everlasting, non-material, non-created, okay? That is what is going to appear after Revelation 22, okay? We're going to go back to that state. God is going to bring everything to himself in that arena, perfectly, consummately, and without any corruption. All right? Now, that's my opinion, right? Now, whether you agree with that or not, at least you've heard, you've seen it mapped out here, okay? But I think it is part of this pattern of redemptive historical recapitulation. The end is like the beginning, or after the end is like before the beginning. The goal is God bringing us to himself, where he is, in the arena in which he exists. See, that arena, perfect. Would you agree that uh, we, we cannot possibly experience the, truly the present tense? Because everything we know is history. As soon as we see it, and everything after that is future, and that that present is unknown, really unknown to us. Right. So. And that present is where God is. Would you agree with that? Good. God is the eternal present tense. What does he say to Moses at the burning bush? I am that I am. No, he's the eternal present tense. How do we grasp an eternal present tense? All right. Are we saying that God is not aware of sequence? Of course he's aware of sequence, but he's not aware of sequence in any time-conditioned way. That's a dimension that is beyond us. You know, it's not twilight zone, it's beyond twilight zone. Okay? Sorry, Rod Surly. Anyway, uh, we push this, all right, because we're pushing it into the eternal dimension of God, his being, his mind, his dimension. Okay, whatever we, that, we, how we describe that dimension. But what we're doing is we're saying that the earth and all of creation is only temporary. It is for a time. It is not for eternity. 
Eternity was before that, before creation. Eternity is going to follow creation. Therefore, I think creation is going to completely be vaporized. Where Jesus is now in his resurrected body, which is a body which is perfectly subject to the Holy Spirit. That's the dimension that is going to exist. Paul says we're there with him now. Yes, we are. In, in, in the sense of being united to Christ. The now, not yet. But Christ's body went into that dimension. And our body is going to go into that dimension at the final resurrection. But in that dimension, that body is going to be perfectly spiritualized. Meaning perfectly subject to the Holy Spirit. Okay? Not subject to the flesh, not subject to the creation itself, not subject to matter and energy. Thank you for allowing me to elaborate. Uh, was, was there something back here? Yes, go ahead, Scott. You already had one. I had two, and I can't remember when you called on me. No, go ahead, Scott. Professors before daughters. Since you touched on Luke 6, 3 and 4, where Jesus comments on this story, I was wondering if you could respond to a particular interpretation of that passage, which diverged uh, to some extent from the one you gave. And that interpretation is to say that Jesus is acknowledging that what David did was, in fact, unlawful on the Sabbath. Uh, that goes with the question, why... Are you doing what is unlawful in the Sabbath? And Jesus' response is that he ain't what is only lawful for the priest. So that implies that Jesus is suggesting he did do something unlawful. And then the second part of that interpretation says that, in effect, David was able to do something unlawful because of his unique position. And therefore, Jesus is paralleling himself to, to, to David as the final you know, son of man. And then paralleling the idea of Sabbath <coughs> with the temple imagery. And saying, just as David was had this unique privilege in the temple, so now, at the final coming of the kingdom, the Son of Man has a unique pre- uh, privilege as Lord of the Sabbath now in the New Testament period, and therefore brings something unique that only was specifically allowable to David is now brought for the entire people. The Sabbath connection with the Son of Man uh, and temple imagery I like, or tabernacle imagery I like. I think when Jesus uses the word not lawful in that text, he is using an ad hominem argument to his audience. He's using the same language they use in verse 2, and he's addressing them in terms that they are understanding. Consequently, he's not charging, charging David with unlawfulness or doing something unlawful any more than he's charging himself with doing something unlawful in feeding his disciples on the Sabbath day. Okay. On, on this interpretation, would you say he had something exceptional, and you would say, no, that's not true. It's just ad hominem. So that, uh, he's explaining the, the necessity of the Sabbath, even as he's explaining the necessity of justification for David having the consecrated bread. <clears throat> they put the words in his mouth. He uses the words to go back to them in order to address them, so for them to see that it was not unlawful. That's my response. Now, you had two questions. Well, I did. Now I have three. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, okay, so Ahimelech, does he redeem Eli's line in this this passage? Does he become a... What's the next chapter do? Well, he's killed.
He's, he's right. martyred. Right. So, uh, so, no, I don't think he redeems uh, Eli's line. Uh, he does the right thing here. Uh, <clears throat> he does the gracious thing here. But he dies because the curse on Eli's line is going to be fulfilled in the next chapter. But is he, as the person who acknowledges the elect of the Lord, the chosen of the Lord, I, I don't know, can we go to saying that he is merely acting as the high priest figurehead who recognizes what God tells him to recognize? Or is there something in, in him that is saying, you're the one who's chosen and you're the one who <clears throat> I, I acknowledge? And I, is he submitting to the will of God? Or is yeah, he, yes, yeah, yeah. He, he does recognize David because he gives him the tools of his office. And so that is an embrace of David. Now, when I say he takes the curse of the house of Eli, he takes the curse of the house of Eli without being cursed himself. The curse falls on him because he's part of the line of the house of Eli, not because he's personally being uh, sent to hell because of it. Okay. So is he like Jonathan then in that regard, kind of? Uh, Good. There's an odd connection there between Jonathan and Ahimelech. The, their fathers were inadequate, and yet they loved the true king. Good. Fine. Um, and then uh, the bread before the Lord. Is there any communion connection going on here with David eating this consecrated bread? And I, I, I don't know. I mean, it just. Uh, we're not sacerdotalists here. We're not going to go down that road. <laughs> All right, it's time for the break. Uh, yeah, I will. I will take your question when we come back from the break. I'm the teacher. If there hadn't been any bread at the temple, would uh, David have eaten birthday cake? <laughs> 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 now I understand the method to her madness. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I don't think Ling has missed my birthday in 16 years. <laughs> wow, you're only 16. <laughs> I'm sweet 16, but I've been kissed lots. <laughs> it, looks like, it looks like somebody else had part of it earlier. chocolate. <laughs> All right, now we have noted the narrative marker there in verse 10 in which the shift, the scene shifts to Gath and the touch of irony that Goliath's sword is in his possession and he travels to Goliath's hometown. But let's recapitulate with another motif. David fled from Saul's house in chapter 19, verse 10. David fled from his own house in chapter 19, verse 18. David fled from Nioth in chapter 20, verse 1. David has now fled from Nob, chapter 21, verse 10. 
Now, that David fled or Dave departed and fled, that's a narrative marker. That is a delimiter. So we've once again moved into a different narrative unit with that uh, verb, David fled. Each time the relentless homicidal Saul breathing out threats and murders produces David's flight. No refuge in Gabeah. No refuge in Bethlehem. No permanent refuge in Naioth of Ramah. No refuge at Nob. Where to flee for refuge? To a place where Saul will not follow. That's where you flee for refuge. To the land of the Philistines, across the border, over the line, where Saul cannot venture, it's outside his jurisdiction. Into the hand of the enemy for refuge, David turns the tables on Saul and crosses over to Philistia. So that once again, David is in between. Once again, encore, David is in between Saul and the Philistines. In between the servants of Achish and the servants of Saul. David once more in between. Yet here in Philistia, in Gath, in the court of Achish, the renown of David has echoed and re-echoed to the Gentiles. These heathen know the ditty of chapter 18, verse 7. What it has been heralded in song by the daughters of Israel is rehearsed by the pagan sons of the coastlands. Here is the Lord's anointed extolled by both Jew and Gentile alike. Oh, the irony of this confession. As if our narrator regales us with the subtle irony of the doublet 21.11, a doublet of 18.7. Can you not see the wry smile on his face as he pens once more? the peon of praise to the king. Even the Gentiles call him the king. Had David fled to Gath incognito? Had he arrived in Philistia in disguise? Whatever the answer to that question, he is now afraid. Verse 12, he has been disabused of hiding among his enemies by the realization That his notoriety, his notoriety has blown his cover. He is not unknown. He is well known. So well known that he is afraid. And now what cover will disguise him successfully? What retreat, what refuge will protect him from his enemies? Shall I take a page out of Saul's book? Shall I act the madman in their presence? Shall I slobber and dribble and scratch away at the gates of Gath? Scratch away at the gates. At the gates. At the other line, which if I cross over, if it is open to me, I will flee and escape once more. Scratch away at the gates. If I find, if I feign madness, perchance the Lord will deliver me 
from all my fears. And Achish, no doublet with Achish, rather a triplet. A madman, a madman, a madman, verses 14 and 15. Thrice over, Achish rejects the mad David, bars him from his house and expels him. Why do you bring him to me? Achish is the master of threefold rhetorical questions. Away with this thrice over madman, thrice over. Why do you bring? Do I lack? Shall this one come? Rhetorical questions. Why do you bring? Do not bring. Rhetorical answer. Do I lack? I do not lack. Rhetorical answer. Shall this one come? This one shall not come. Rhetorical answer. Threefold madman, threefold rhetorical questions. The unfolding organic relational presence of the Lord with David progresses from David's election at Bethlehem to David's vindication at Elah to God's prophet Samuel at Nioth to God's unselfish servant Jonathan to God's priest Ahimelech, God's relational presence yet more precious as David is relentlessly pursued and driven from place to place as a renegade and a fugitive, an outcast from his own people, from his own land. In chapter 21, the food of that presence is his to possess. The God of his presence reiterates his past mercies with the sword of David, and the presence of the Lord saves him out of all his troubles, Psalm 34, verse 6 and verse 17. Saves him out of all his troubles by delivering him even by feigned play acting. Will David's fugitive spiral, a downward spiral of running, fleeing, escaping, Will that downturn leave him raving, a veritable anti-Saul with God's Holy Spirit, God's spirit presence removed from him? Or will the bread of the presence feed him with God's mercy, will the sword of Goliath place in his hand a token of God's mercy, Will the testimony of his enemies demonstrate God's mercy, will the mercy presence of God be enough, enough For this fugitive, will the mercy presence of God be enough for you? It was enough for Jesus, God with him when his enemies oppressed him, God with him when his friends abandoned him, when mercy deserted him and justice seized him, dread, deadly justice laid hold of Jesus in the hour of darkness and the power thereof. When justice seized him for you, then you received mercy as he took the justice in your place. And from that blessed mercy, mercy of the eschatological David, you received God's presence, not God's absence. You were fed by the Lord of the Sabbath. You were delivered by the Lord of the two-edged sword. 
you were redeemed from the stronghold of the enemy by the eschatological king of the true land of God's presence, by the eschatological king of the land of heaven. And in that land, his presence will be enough for you. Turn briefly with me now to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. And take a look at the title to the psalm above verse 1, where David is described as feigning madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. The name Abimelech there, instead of the name Achish, which may underscore the fact that the titles are not inspired, being based upon Jewish tradition, and therefore a potential error in the label of the psalm. And yet there is another possibility that the tradition is accurate, that Abimelech is not a personal name, it is a dynastic title. In other words, like the title Pharaoh, and the individual personal names of the Pharaoh varied. It is conceivable that the Philistine kings took the name Abimelech as a dynastic title when their personal name was different. I can't solve that dilemma. I can only suggest options or possible solutions to it. Now, there is a noteworthy feature to this psalm. You will notice, if you turn to the end of it, that it has 22 verses. That may not strike you, but the Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. And this psalm is an acrostic. It is one of ten acrostics in the Psalter. An acrostic is a passage that begins with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet and follows the letters of the Hebrew alphabet to the end, all 22 of them, somewhat like A to Z, only from Aleph to Tau in the Hebrew alphabet. Here, verse 1, beginning with Aleph, and verse 21, ending with Tau, you say, but you said it had 22 verses. Verse 22 actually begins with a different letter, and the wow or the vav in Hebrew has been left out of the sequence in the acrostic, so that verse 22 finishes the psalm, though it does not complete the acrostic feature. Like A to Z in English, from Aleph to Tau in Hebrew working your way through the Hebrew alphabet from beginning in sequence to the end. That's an acrostic structure. The most famous acrostic in the Bible is a Hebrew acrostic in Psalm 119, where the poet works with the Hebrew alphabet in eight-verse stanzas from A to Z, actually from Aleph to Tau. What's the point of an acrostic. And in fact, Psalm 119 is one of the most remarkable poetic productions in the history of all literature. Remarkable to think that every one of the initial words of those eight lines begin with the same letter and then to the next letter of the alphabet and then to the next letter of alphabet, eight verses all the way to 176 verses, eight times 22 to the end of the Hebrew alphabet. You can even learn the names of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet by looking at the headings to Psalm 119 and the various eight-verse sections from Aleph to Tau. All right, what's the point of an acrostic? 
Well, in Psalm 119, the subject is the law of God from A to Z. A whole comprehensive treatment of the law of God from A to Z, from Aleph to Tau. So the acrostic is an attempt to be comprehensive and exhaustive. Here in Psalm 34, a comprehensive or complete and thorough declaration of the nature of God's deliverance. The comprehensive character of how thoroughly God delivered David as he rehearses it in the presence of Achish. Now this Psalm 34 is also an easy psalm to notice the pattern of the bicolas, that is, the two lying verses. Bicolas. Two line verses. And the pattern that we described uh, months ago, weeks ago, I should say, A line, I will bless the Lord at all times. And what is more, B line, his praise shall continually be in my mouth. The expansion of the second cola over the first. Notice verse 2. A line, my soul shall make its boast in the Lord. B line, and what is more, the humble shall hear it and rejoice. A-line, O magnify the Lord with me, and what is more, be, and let us exalt his name together. Notice that the advance to the expansion of the B-line enriches the A-line. And you can go right through this psalm one line after another and see how that pattern is uh, flowing out of the structure of the psalm. Now, turning to Psalm 56. You notice that Psalm 56 is also a psalm of David. And the title says, When the Philistines seized him in Gath. Now this psalm is structured around a revelation or declaration or confession of David's faith at the time of that incident in Gath. You'll notice the twofold in verse 4, In God and in God. And then in verses 10 and 11, the twofold, in God and in God. Thus, in both Psalm 34 and Psalm 56, the poetry emerges from the history, the historical experience of David amongst the Philistines, where God's work on the poet's behalf, on the psalmist's behalf, leads him to sing praises to God for his work in history, for his work on his behalf in history. I've said it to you before, you cannot divorce the Psalms and their poetry from the history of the psalmist's experience of what God has done for him in history. History is essential to understanding the poetry. Otherwise, if you separate the history from the poetry, you just have devotional lines. That is not what the Psalter is. It is not devotional line. You want devotional poetry? Go pick up guideposts or any of this other fluff that they sell in Christian bookstores. You get all the sentimental Christian poetry you want if you want devotional stuff. That's not what this is. This is revelation into historical experience and therefore expresses out of that historical drama the very life and fidelity of God. The title suggests that David was seized in Gath. That does not agree with what we read in 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 to 15. And hence is an indication of the suspect tradition behind some of these psalm titles. In other words, they aren't inspired 
because, in fact, this one has a mistake in it. He wasn't seized. He was let go because he feigned madness. Question. Uh, well, his name is on, what, 60 of them or something like that. I can't remember the exact number. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll take that uh, tradition and we'll work with it. Now, the language of both uh, Psalm 34 and 56 does fit this incident. Therefore, the attachment, if this is attached to it by tradition and it isn't written on it by a scribe that was given a copy of it. In other words, David handed a copy of this to some scribe and he wrote this on top of it. Okay, uh, If the tradition is attempting to uh, indicate how the Jews saw this psalm in relationship to the canonization of the Psalter, um, we'll take it seriously and we'll work with it. But we won't draw a bill of infallibility for it. Okay, We'll work with it and see if it fits. And if it fits, perhaps we can even uh, make stronger the case for the fact the psalm belongs in this context because of the drama, the language, the use of vocabulary, etc. Are you going to go back and talk about David and Achish again? No, I'm not. Is David lying? I'm done with Achish. Okay. Is David, equi- I mean, he's equivocating, he's dissembling, so is he lying? In his in, in his in his uh, feigned insanity? No, he's not lying. He's just uh, appearing to be a madman and uh, playing the playing the role of a madman and knows that that's going to get him kicked out. He wants released. He wants out of town. He wants to escape again because he's afraid. The feigning of the madness. He doesn't say anything. He just scribbles on the door. He's silent. Scribbles on the on the gates. And um, you know, open wide these gates to me. So he scribbled on gates, he's and in a, he's not insane, and yet he's acting insane. So I mean, what, what's the distinction between? Is it wrong to save your life by acting insane, even though you're not? Well, the midwives lie and, and to protect. This isn't. This isn't. This isn't lying. This is play acting. <laughs> is it? Is it wrong for them to go up to the to the city of Ai and then retreat to draw them out? You know, is it wrong to have a feint to counter feint? Is it wrong to use strategy in war? Then God better condemn Joshua because he endorses it. Right? You have to, you, you struggle with that issue. Okay? Uh, I don't think there's any deception here. I think there's preser- self preservation here through what they interpret him to be, and they say we don't want him three times. Achish says we don't want him out of here. I'm going on to chapter 22. I will take any questions at the end of the hour. (laughs) All right. Now, the narrative units in chapter 22, beginning with verse 1, we have a change of scene. Notice your map. Uh, Adulam, verse 3, another change of scene. Moab and verse 5. Another change of scene, Judah, within the space of five verses, we have three changes of location. But I'm going to regard this as a single narrative unit from verses one to five. Why am I going to do that? I want you to notice the inclusio word departed, verse one, and departed, verse five. 
This section of five verses has its own narrative integrity. It is an indication of David's rapidly changing locations as an indication of the increased hostility and pressure from Saul. He is moving very quickly from one place to another because Saul is on his heels. Even his own family forced to take refuge with him because Saul is on their heels. Saul is squeezing anyone and everyone who has a connection with David. Even outcasts and malcontents are coming to David. A band of pariahs, 400 strong, verse 2. He who was captain of Saul's guard, verse 14, becomes captain of a band of fugitives. Now, the Hebrew word adulam in verse 1 means refuge. There's no refuge in Gath. David finds asylum in a cave of refuge. Notice your map halfway between Gath and Bethlehem. He can't even go to his own hometown. He has to hide out in a cave somewhere in the hills. But he moves quickly from there to Moab, to Moab across the Dead Sea, on the Transjordanian side, out of the promised land. Why? In order to save the life of his parents. Why Moab? Because of his great-grandmother Ruth. Exactly. He takes them back to the land of his great-grandmother's ancestry because he knows that he can appeal to that ancestry for their preservation. Now, they never reappear in the narrative, but nonetheless, we have no reason to doubt that they were preserved as a result of David's actions. And then the prophet Gad in verse 5. The very interesting prophet Gad. First Chronicles 29.29, we learn that Gad was a recorder of the chronicles of King David along with Nathan the prophet and Samuel the prophet. Hence, part of the chronicle of David's career comes from records preserved or recorded by the prophets Samuel, Nathan, and Gad. You construct the narrative from records or annals that have been preserved in the state archives. This is the reason that the Jewish culture and the Jewish faith labels the historical books, as we call them, Joshua through 2 Kings, omitting the book of Ruth. This is the reason that the Jewish tradition labels these books, Joshua through 2 Kings, as the former prophets. The former prophets. Because they were constructed by the prophets, Samuel, Nathan, and Gad. The latter prophets are what we call the canonical prophets, Isaiah through Malachi. Now in verse 5, you have this note about the forest of Heres. It is otherwise unknown has evaded any identification up to our modern time. There is, however, a quaint Jewish rabbinical tradition that suggests that it was in the forest of Harris that David wrote the 23rd Psalm. David, in crossing back over to Israel, 
is providing benefits from his role as king-elect to his family, to the outcasts among his people. He is providing benefits of his designation as king-elect to 400 souls. The shadow king draws numerous beneficiaries within his perimeter. The shadow kingdom benefits those who camp under its canopy. David's upwardly spiraling career advances providing refuge, relief, reinforcement to those who fall under his wings. The circle of David is the arena of life. But Saul, verses 6 to 19, the circle of Saul is the ongoing downward spiral of death. Bloody death carnage. Brutal, ruthless soul slaughters the priests of the Lord. What audacity, what depravity, what tragedy. Ahimelech, the supplier of David, is drawn into David's circle, drawn into David's circle, but cannot flee, cannot escape, cannot evade the death wish of Saul. In verses 6 to 8, we have a characterization portrait of Saul, in which verse 6 pictures him as sitting under a tree in a posture of brooding, brooding and threatening, spear in his hand, ominous posture, isolated, only his close servants around him, a contrast with the various individuals who are coming to David and following within his circle, Saul alone under his tree with only his closest bodyguards around him, spear at hand. In verse 7, he sarcastically rejoins his own Benjamite tribesmen. He is of the tribe of Benjamin, and he sarcastically disses them. Verse 8, we see his paranoia. We see this victim syndrome, which is characteristic of paranoia. Shifting the blame to others, always being persecuted or opposed by others. Jonathan, his own son, the source of his alleged troubles and paranoia. Notice how he names David in that eighth verse. He calls him son of Jesse. He doesn't even use his proper name. And in verses 9 and 10, Doag imitates Saul and says, son of Jesse. This is the designation of contempt. Contempt for David won't use his personal name, will only use his name as one of 
his father's sons. Doeg's accusations in verses 9 and 10 are, first of all, that Ahimelech inquired of the Lord for David. That's a bald-faced lie. Ahimelech did not inquire of the Lord for David. But he knows it'll play with Saul because Saul has been shut out of inquiring of the Lord through the prophets or through the priests. And that will inflame Saul's anger if he says that David got the privilege of having the priest inquire of the Lord for him. Second charge is that Ahimelech gave provisions to David, which is an accusation of providing aid and comfort to the enemy of the king. And the third accusation is that he provided David with the sword of Goliath, which with the 400 men he has attracted is a sure sign of armed revolution. David is a guerrilla revolutionary and rebel. Saul summons Ahimelech to a hearing. Probably at Nob, where Saul has gone, as verse 19 seems to indicate, Saul has gone to the place of the priest's uh, living quarters, and Saul places the high priest on trial for his life. Accuser, prosecutor, judge and jury. And what do you detect in verse 12? In verse 12, Saul won't use the personal name of Ahimelech. He, too, shows contempt for the high priest by calling him son of Ahitav. Ahimelech's response, here am I. I am at your service, O Lord my King. Ahimelech disingenuously extends himself, as is his proper role and responsibility, to do the king's proper bidding. Verse 13 is an echo of verses 9 and 10. Saul repeats Doeg's accusation. Saul has assumed the role now of prosecuting attorney. And the phrase lying in wait or preparing an ambush is the expression that Saul has accepted Doeg's charge that Ahimelech has fomented open rebellion by arming David with Goliath's sword and giving him provisions. Now you'll notice from the chiastic outline that I've given you from J.P. Fockelman, which is part of your handout, that the center of the chiasm is verses 14 and 15. Ahimelech's defense. The hinge then of this scene with the priest of Nob lies, it hinges, it moves on Ahimelech's bold defense. Bold because in verse 14 he says, in effect, what you are saying about David is ridiculous. Who is more faithful? Who has been more devoted? He's even your own son-in-law. You made him a member of your family. He's been captain of your guard, your own personal bodyguard. You entrusted him with the protection of your own life. You honored him in your house, and others in your house gave him the honor of his role as a servant. 
as son-in-law, as your bodyguard, as your faithful champion. You are ridiculous in charging him with conspiracy and rebellion. The defense of Ahimelech of David before Saul in chapter 22 is an echo of the defense of David before Saul by Jonathan in chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. We have, in a sense, an instant replay of two friends of David defending his integrity. Verse 15, far be it from me. Far be it from me to do what? Far be it from me to inquire of God for him. I know nothing of this affair, either small or great. I am absolutely innocent of the false charge that I consulted God on his behalf. Do not impute to me or my father's house, he pleads, verse 15. Verse 16, Saul does impute to him and his father's house. Notice the contrastive parallelism. And in verse 16 now, Saul uses his name. No longer contemptuous, but murderous in his rage against this named high priest. And in verse 17, the king has commanded. We are commanded to obey the powers that be. The servants of Saul are bound to obey the law of the king. Put the priests to death. Obey the law of the king. But they will not. They will not because of the right of disobedience to even the law of the king. When the king commands what is contrary to God's law, then you do not obey the law of the king or the word of the king. You obey a higher law. You are servants of the Lord God. We will not take innocent life, even though you, King Saul, command us to do so. We will not turn our swords against the priests of the Lord. We refuse. But Doeg will not. The foreigner will not. The man who is not an Israelite will turn his sword in imitation of Saul, liar, murderous Saul, liar, murderous Doeg. Doeg will turn his sword in obedience to the infernal law of man and in disobedience to the divine law of God. Thou shalt not kill, and Doeg has 85 points of indictment against him on the judgment day. Why? Why is this Edomite so willing to take up his sword and do the bidding, the bloodthirsty bidding of his king? Because Doeg, as an Edomite, is related to the Amalekites. 
In Genesis chapter 36, verses 12 and 16, we read that the Amalekites are descended from Edom. And Doag remembers the Amalekites in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. The Amalekites who were slaughtered. Even the king of the Amalekites, Agag, who was slaughtered by Samuel. In 1 Samuel 15, 32 to 33, and Doag says, I will slaughter these priests of the Lord and avenge the Amalekites and King Agag, my relatives. Doag is compliant because Doag is evening the score. And if it takes 85 dead priests to satisfy for hundreds of dead Amalekites and a dead king hewn in pieces by Samuel before the Lord, then so be it. And not only does he slaughter the eight or five priests, but in verse 19, he goes on a wholesale rampage and like a feeding frenzy, kills man, woman, child, and beasts in the village of Nob, a pogrom, a pogrom, wretched, dark. Wretched Saul, wretched, tyrannical murderers, massacre innocent flesh for their own political or vengeful purposes. All megalomania is ultimately tyrannical, whether it's political or domestic, it is tyrannical, and it is reprehensible. It makes no difference whether it comes from the killing madmen of the 20th century or from the aspiring madmen of the 21st century. It is madness and it is despicable, but it is fed by power freak personality grabs. The dominance of one life over another, one system over another, one party over another, one nation over another, one religion over another. It is the same infernal depravity that we see here in 1 Samuel 22. Yet one escapes the bloodlust, Abiathar seeks refuge with David. And a chapter that began in verses 1 to 5 with David seeking refuge ends in verses 20 to 23 with the last priest, the one surviving last priest seeking refuge with David. The king-elect is joined by the priest-elect David protects God's priest. Saul has had them killed. 
The contrastive upward and downward spirals draw further and further apart. Abiathar imitates David. He escapes and flees. Saul has become, in his descent to unbiblical depravity, pathological paranoia, a king whose kingdom consists of hatred and death. Bloody, vicious, murderous death. At the feet of its self-centeredness lie the victims it crushes. And it is always so. The victims who are crushed by the depravity of bloodlust and death. Yet from this kingdom of death, God rescues one with life. And fleeing to the king whose life he joins, he hears, he hears the words of assurance from within the refuge of security, you are safe with me. Safe with the protological David, even more so with the eschatological David. The eschatological kingdom of life, not death, is the eschatological arena of safety. In the house of God, I trust in the loving kindness of the Lord forever and ever. Psalm 52, verses 8 and 9, a psalm attached to this incident of Doag in 1 Samuel 22. The title of Psalm 142 suggests a song written in a cave. Is it the cave of Ajalom in verse 1 of 1 Samuel 22? Or is it the cave of the wilderness of En Gedi, which we will meet in chapter 24, verse 3? And then Psalm 57, also entitled, Of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. These psalms may appropriately then fit the caves of 1 Samuel 22 or 1 Samuel 24, perhaps even the hiding places, which may be caves or caverns in 1 Samuel 23. Once again, we have a poetic reflection upon the incident of David in Psalm 52, David with Doag in Psalm 52, and David in his hiding in Psalms 142 and 57. Now I'll take your question, Ling. Well, now I have three. You were like King Achish. So there is a sort of, I mean, do you see a sort of 
irony here in which he now has to be afraid before, you know, these, uh, the Philistines, which he had obviously um, stood firm for God in that Valley of Elah, and he is now running for his life and must act like a madman in the midst of his enemies. Correct. The ironies, the irony does abound there. And if the Psalms are correctly identified, he is reduced to crying out to God to deliver him, not to the sword of Goliath or even to his own uh, play acting per se. And God is faithful to deliver him. But yes, he has forgotten what uh, happened uh, in that valley and he has forgotten what that sword testifies about his own uh, champion character. I won't rule that out, um, though I, I think he has uh, rushed in where fools fear to tread and he's been caught up short, partly because he's been recognized and realizes that the ditty that's sung in rehearsal of, uh, of his character and his role is now made him more prominent than he wanted to be. He wanted to kind of disappear into the woodwork when he went down to Gath. It, it, it didn't happen because he's recognized. If I may steal another note, it's like Servetus coming to Geneva and sitting in Calvin's church and getting recognized, but go ahead. Well, I mean, there just seems to be this sense of humiliation that he has to go through. I mean, the Gath side, the people of Gath see, you know, they're, they're almost, I mean, if there's a repetition of the song of, you know, this is David who, who slew his ten thousands, right? There's a repetition of that song, and yet he's this humiliated figure, um, which I think uh, 34, Psalm 34 picks up on that sense of humiliation. It is the motif of his flight throughout, all the way through 26. So in the background of his being on the run, is his being humiliated or oppressed or suffering insofar as he has to always keep moving and hiding, uh, trying to stay one step ahead of Saul. Yes, so the the motif of humiliation is definitely there. He's being conformed to the humiliation of his own greater son in that regard. He's feeling the sense of the pangs of what it means to be an outcast. And he goes from cave, nowhere to lie his head, Fine. And people are being actually incorporated <coughs> into his humiliation and actually have to face death because of Correct. Um, all right. A uh, question on Saul now. Um, the Amalekites, you know, this was Saul's big thing as king. His big task as king was to slaughter the Amalekites down to the sheep and oxen and women and children, I mean, completely, as Doeg does with Krisa and Nob. Except that, you know, is this a huge reversal that we see, this huge downward spiral reversal in the sense that there he was in the beginning of his kingship, 
obviously not slaughtering, not slaughtering the Amalekites, and perhaps Doeg being a shepherd of those Amalekite sheep. <laughs> by That's a reach, but go ahead. <laughs> um, by the end, uh, that sort of survivor of that Amalekite slaughter is then uh, now slaughtering his own pe- I mean, slaughtering the Israelites. I think the revenge motif is there. Uh, the extent of the slaughtering is to, uh, I think, revenge and tit for tat, so to speak. In other words, this is as exactly as possible. I think that possibly is driving Doeg's uh, sword. Yes. So you're seeing it more as a uh, reflection on Doeg rather than a reflection on Saul. Yeah, Saul's already been rejected when he does not destroy the Amalekites as he's been commanded to do. God has already said, I'm looking for a man after my own heart in chapter 13. And the Amalekite incident is in chapter 15. Though he's already on the downward spiral when he comes to chapter 15. You see a parallel between King Herod of the New Testament and Saul in the slaughter of the innocents. Only in the sense that they're slaughtering innocents, I, I don't see any kind of typological relationship between this incident and uh, Matthew chapter 2. Well, they, they have the same character of, uh, of murdering those who they regard as a threat to them. But I don't, I don't see a direct, what shall I say? One's going after the protological David and one's uh, going after the eschatological David. Uh, yes. Uh, that's a good observation. Um, <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll step halfway back, Robert. I'll ponder that. How's that? <laughs> yes. Can, can you repeat the relationship between the Edomites and the Amalekites? I, I, you were in Genesis 36, the Amalekites descend from the nation of Edom. And so they are related. They are blood relatives. And as an Edomite, uh, Doeg, uh, my suggestion is that he's reflecting upon the execution or slaughter of the Amalekites by Saul in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. So he's getting revenge. Would that have been a relationship that they would have maintained, or would they they have been at war with each other? Like it seems like all the Canaanite countries eventually... Uh, Well, I, I don't know that, but the fact that he is labeled an Edomite, and it's in this book where we've also got Amalekites labeled, I think the narrator is trying to have us connect the dots. Blood is thicker than water, even blood that has ancestry in the background... You know, any of you that know about uh, Appalachian feuds that go back hundreds of years, or not hundreds of years, they go back uh, tens of years, go back into the 19th century. Uh, <clears throat> these, these people don't tend to forgive and forget very often. So I think it's the same kind of pattern here. Right? My suggestion is that Doeg does what he does not just because Saul tells him to do it or Saul wants somebody to do it. Doeg does it because he has an ulterior motive in doing it. Not only do he want to serve the king, but he wants to get even. That's my suggestion. I can't prove it. I'm trying to trace the dots from why he's identified as an Edomite and why he may be doing what he's doing. As Ling has pointed out, it's virtual replay of what was supposed to be done to the Amalekites. He does to the priests and to the village of Nob. Why does Abiathar survive? Abiathar survive? 
line of, of um, Eli. Yes, he survives as the continuation of the priestly line until Solomon, and then it will change from that line to Zadok. Uh, but uh, he, he's preserved, God preserves a priestly representative by his escape. Rich, Margaret? Uh, Ladies before gentlemen. <laughs> well, they uh, must be is, <laughs> this Islam is still fighting things that happened a thousand years ago, so that's the mentality of the Yes, uh, political memories, tribal memories, even religious memories, that's correct. Rich? I'm intrigued with the association of uh, Goliath's sword with the ephod. The ephod had, uh, what, two uh, stones attached to it? It it could have, okay? It could have, all right? Now, if it's a high priest's ephod, it does have the breastplate that's attached to it. Is this the high priest's ephod? I'm not sure it is. I'm not sure it's not. Okay? But potentially you're right. All right? Go on with what you were thinking. Well, I, just, I just wanted to know, you know, if there's some symbolism involved there with, with uh, David being, you know, taking the sword that was associated with the people of Israel, and that further uh, uh, welds him to the people of Israel somehow. I don't know. I'm just guessing. No, I don't think so. I think that the ephod is a different role distinction. When he takes the sword, he's taking the sword as an instrument of his own ability to defend and be the champion of God's people, not a priestly, not a priestly role. The fact that the priestly role is there in protecting the sword, okay, with the ephod, all right, then it, then we go transition. When he takes it out of that arena, it comes into his own arena. Does that make sense? Okay. Well, thank you, um, and thanks for the birthday cake and, and the singing.